When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to this week's podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch new episodes every Thursday, so don't forget to subscribe. Now, what happened after the Romans left Britain? It's a big and yet tantalising question because it inevitably throws up many more which we'll get into with our guests. Joining us first is Curator of Collections for the West Midlands at English Heritage, Cameron Moffat. Hi. And with her, Honorary Senior Lecturer in Archaeology at the University of Birmingham, Dr Roger White. Hello. When examining the end of Roman rule in Britannia, what sources do we have? Who wants to start us off? Roger, I'm handing it to you. Okay, we don't really have many sources at all. The Romans are so busy dealing with their own crises that they don't want to be bothered recording what's happening in a tiny little island on the edge of their empire. So we don't have any contemporary histories at all. What we have are later histories which were compiled retrospectively. So both from the English stroke Anglo-Saxon side but also from the British side, from the Welsh and other peoples of Britain. So that provides an interesting insight in the sense that it's a bit, it's a broader recording of events, because normally you just get the Roman version, don't you? Absolutely, yes. But equally, uh, you can't rely on any of it, because it's all very, very um, opaque. We have mentions of things that are going on in Britain as far as they impinge on things that are happening on the continent. So, for example, the last major bit of evidence we have from late Roman Britain is that an emperor is proclaimed in Britain called Constantine III, and he invades the continent with an army. And this is taken to mean that he depletes the garrison of Britain in order to further his own ambitions as Emperor of Rome. And in that, he, he fails. Eventually, he fails. Right. But uh, that's the last mention. That's in 407 AD. Yes, and wasn't Constantine also made officially Emperor in York? That's a different Constantine. So many Constantines. That's the earlier Constantine. That's the first Con- That's Constantine the Great. So this is almost exactly 100 years later. And he probably selects the name, yeah, he selects the name Constantine III to echo what's happening in earlier. It was useful that uh, we cleared that up through my error. So, um, <laughs> so out of the sources that we do have, which provides the most or best evidence? Cameron, do you have an idea on this? Well, yes, as Roger has, has explained, there are almost no surviving written sources And so in Britain, what we have is the archaeological evidence. And that is a bit ephemeral and really needs sort of unpacking. 
but it is there. And what we see from the archaeological evidence is the rapid decline in available coinage, the near cessation of large-scale manufacturing of goods for a wider market, and just a widespread picture of a period of making do and mending and shrinking economy, shrinking urbanism. So there's not that much, but what it is does tell quite an interesting story. We're agreed that archaeology is probably the best way to try and tell this story of the Romans departing from Britain, really. Are we all agreed yes. on that? Yes. yes, but the caveat is that dating it is the real problem. And what's the problem related to that, Roger? Well, because how do you date something... If, as Cameron says, all the production is going out in decline, they're not making less pottery, they're making less artefacts, how do you actually date them? Because you're at the end of the sequence of Roman artefacts, you know, if you have a pot that you've inherited from your grandmother and you continue to use that for 50 to 60 years, the date of the pot is 50 to 60 years before you actually deposit it. Do you see what I mean? You get a sort of long tail of use of things. And we can see this because they mend pots, they rivet them together, even quite basic pots, because they just can't replace them. And of course, they would never have done that previously because you would just go and buy another pot. But suddenly when there are no pots to be bought, everything becomes much more important. Extending the life of these useful household objects becomes very much important. So basically what we have, what we have to do is to rely on scientific dates like radiocarbon. Yes, and where it is in the layers of soil and how deep it was found, etc. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so this is already making our story of Roman departure a little bit tricky. Oh, it was never going to be simple, no. <laughs> no, okay, and this is history, unfortunately. It's just It just comes with the territory. We're going to focus, though, as part of our discussion, mostly on the western region of Britain. So... Why are we focusing on this area? Is it just got the best archaeological evidence? Yes and no. It does have very good sequences on some sites. But the principal reason for focusing on the western side of Britain is it's so different from the rest of England. In the south and east and northeast of England, the evidence is that the um, incoming peoples, the Anglo-Saxons, if you want to call them that, took over quite quickly, apparently or at least they are settling in quite large numbers, enough to disrupt and change the society that they're embedding themselves in. In the West, this isn't the case. We do not have Anglo-Saxon settlement until 200 years after the formal beginning of Anglo-Saxon England. Ah. So there's a long gap, and it's in that gap that the people that we think of are people like the Cornish and the Welsh begin to emerge. Yes, and that makes sense because obviously the Anglo-Saxons, as you say, or the peoples from Northern Europe, Germany and Denmark, they would have come over via the eastern side, wouldn't they? Whereas it's harder to make a journey from, say, Northern France up to the Portsmouth-Dorset area. So, well, Or even worse, around the Bristol Channel. You know, yes. You've got to get right round Cornwall and then up the other side into the Irish Sea. It's really, really quite tricky. Yes. So the western region of Britain, what we would term the West Country, perhaps South Wales as well, bits of 
maybe Worcestershire, Gloucestershire, that sort of area. That, I presume, is the, is the best area where we can tell this story. We can, we can see the sort of decline of Roman Britain through this sort of microcosm. Yes, but in order to understand that picture, we need to go a little bit further back. We need to go back to the beginning of the 4th century, 100 years before, because at that time, the Roman government reorganised the provinces of the whole of the empire, including Britain. And what they did was they basically divided the large province of Britannia into four separate regions. So they all have their own independent capitals. On the eastern side, you've got a capital in London, and that's the main capital, and that governs the whole province of Britannia. So that's Londinium. That's Londinium. And then to the north, you've got Lincoln, Linden, which is the capital of the sort of next province up. That's mm-hmm. called Flavia Caesariensis. And then to the north, you've got Britannia Secunda, which covers the whole of Lancashire and Yorkshire and Cumbria and all the bits up to Hadrian's Wall. Mm-hmm. So that is capital is York, Ibarakum. And then basically from the Mersey right down to the Cornish coast and to Land's End and sort of west of the Trent. It's basically the basin of the Severn Valley. Uh, yes. So it's that whole Marches region from Cheshire right down to Dorset, Dorset, Hampshire. That is all one province called Britannia Prima. And what's the capital of that one? And its capital is Cirencester, Corinium. Which is Gloucestershire. Yeah, and you can still see the town walls in the amphitheatre there. Okay, so that's really interesting. When, when was this division then, Roger? We think it was implemented in the 280s or 290s. It's basically done by the Emperor Diocletian. And the problem was that when he did this reform, Britain was not actually within the Roman Empire. It was a satellite. It was in revolt, basically. It was controlled by a chap called Carousius. And for six years, Britain was outside of the province, out of the former control of the Roman Empire. Uh And that was only re-established in 296. So even though the reform had happened on paper, it's not implemented until 296. This is where the story of Roman Britain um, really does develop a lot of nuance, doesn't it? Because um, it wasn't just a simple case of them landing and then taking control. There's a lot of tugs of war, as you've just described. Well, we're talking 300 years after the invasion. A lot can happen in 300 years. Of course. Do we have any particular records that talk about the end of Roman rule, so specifically the very the very end where the decision is made to no longer support Britain militarily? Not really. What we have is this reference to Constantine III taking the troops out. And coincident with that, in the archaeology, we find that there are no coins coming into Britain. So Roman coins are not made in Britain. They are imported by the state to pay their both the army and the civil servants. So the fact that we can't see much coin coming in, the exception to this is Richborough. And that's in Kent. Which is the place where coins are imported into Kent, into Richborough. And there are th- you know, tens of thousands of these coins there, but they don't get any further. Why don't they get further, do you think? Well, because of this usurpation, because Constantine III has taken them out formally of the empire and he's in revolt. So, so therefore, they are not legitimate. They're not a legitimate part of the empire anymore. 
So the coins are no longer in use? They're not distributed from Richborough. They just stay in Richborough. So the people who've, who are in revolt are saying we're not going to use this currency? Basically, yes. It's quite a messy picture, isn't it, Cameron? It is a messy picture. There is chaos, civil war, brigandry throughout Britain. It really was a very difficult patch. I think I'd like to add a little nuance to that in that I think initially there wasn't panic because I think it's a bit like the situation. So basically the top level of government has gone and the people in the provinces, you know, running Sirencester or running Lincoln or York, they just carry on because they are expecting imperial control to be reimposed. And the last thing they want is for them, their masters to come back and say, what has happened? Why is, it, why is everything in chaos? So I think initially, perhaps even for a decade or two, things just carry on. There's no awareness that Roman Britain has ended, if you see what I mean. Yes. This is all retrospective. We always think it's inevitable. It's not, nothing in it is inevitable. Yes. It's a retrospective process. And so basically, they just carry on. But after one or two decades, exactly the sort of chaos that Cameron was talking to begins. So there is this hiatus. And of course, no one records it, because why would you? Why would you record things carrying on as normal? Although it's a bit more difficult to get your pots in the market. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. And I suppose news doesn't travel that quickly across Britannia, does it? Well, there's always going to be a delay because everything is done by courier and people on arriving on boats and saying, have you heard the latest? Which may be three months out of date by the time yeah. it's shared. Outside of the um, communication problems and the um, internal wranglings within Britannia, what was the wider political context for withdrawal? It was a military decision, wasn't it? I think, as Roger has said, the Western Roman Empire was so massively overextended and facing barbarian incursions on multiple fronts on the continent. And Britain was just one province too far and they cut it adrift with little compunction. I see. And when we say barbarians, what do we mean by that? We mean the people beyond the frontiers. Yes, particularly to the north and, 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 uh, and also the east of, of Rome itself, really. So basically people who aren't controlled by Rome are labelled barbarians. Yes and no. They, um, <laughs> the, the trouble is we're now 300 years of Roman Empire and the peoples on the frontier have got, actually got very good relationships with the Romans and they quite often serve in Roman armies and they quite often then go back to their homeland and introduce all sorts of Roman customs. So it's not like the situation in the first century AD where they were complete strangers to each other. By now, they have set up enormous connections. You get a really good example of this is exactly at the, this early 5th century period, is that the most senior military commander in the Western Roman Empire is a guy called Stilicho, and he's actually a barbarian. Okay. He's an assimilated barbarian. He's a bandle. So there's a lot of um, mixing of cultures going on, and as we've already just discussed, quite an unclear withdrawal process. How do we characterise this withdrawal of Roman influence in Britain? Was it pretty gradual? It sounds like that's what you're saying, 
It is, Roger. Well, the response from the authorities in Britain who are left... So you take the top tier away and you've got these functionaries in these various centres and they say, oh dear, we're defenceless. How do we defend ourselves? So what they do is the classic late Roman solution, which is they employ mercenaries, in other words, barbarians, to defend them. And this is an absolutely standard late Roman response to a military crisis. You search around for a band of warriors who you can pay money to and they will come and defend you. So on the eastern side of Britain, they ask the people nearest them, who are the Franks and the Saxons and the Angles, to come and defend them. But if you're in Western Britain, you can't do that. So what you do is you ask the Irish, who also are barbarians and who live much closer to you than all of these other peoples. So we have lots of evidence in the west of Britain for Irish settlement at this time. And we can see it from their tombstones where they're writing in their own, they're writing in Irish, but they're using a particular form of inscription called ogham. It's not letters, it's notches cut on the edges of rocks. So there's a sort of cluster of cuts made in, in the edges of stones. And this is a transliteration of the Latin alphabet into a different form of writing, but it's being written in Irish. So we know that the Irish are settling. So this is a parallel settlement with what's going on in the eastern side of England. And this is why the West is so different. It sounds like a byproduct of being a mercenary. It's almost like taking a job away from where you live and then you just end up relocating permanently. Yes, and then they went back. Some of them went back and some of them didn't. And I suppose if there's a power vacuum developing, then perhaps you could um, be a bigwig. Yes, this is what ultimately happens, we think. So this is where the stories of Vortigern and Arthur and all the people like that come from, is this sort of later retelling of this story of how they settled becomes this rebellion, which isn't recorded historically, but clearly is a folk memory. And folk memories do sometimes have a kernel of truth to them. It's almost like perhaps even the mercenaries turned against the people who were employing them, possibly. That's the British version of it. The Anglo-Saxon version, it's slightly different. But of course, once you don't have the coinage to pay your mercenaries any longer, then if you want to retain their services, then you have to pay them in some other way. And uh, this might have been land to settle on. And the other way of paying them is we know that they also employed the Picts because there's a hill fort to the south of Edinburgh called Traprane Law, where 23 kilos of silver was found in 1911 during an excavation. This is the largest, it's called hack silver. And basically what they're doing is chopping up silver vessels. They're taking plates and jugs and they're just cutting them up. And initially, when it was first excavated, the excavator said, oh, this is barbarians cutting up. They don't understand these lovely, beautiful objects. So they've cut them all up as part of their booty just shoved them in their bags to carry away. But we now think this was done by the Romans in order to pay these people to serve them. And the reason we think that is because when you look at these things in discrete parcels, they often conform to Roman weights. Ah, so an interesting which clue. Which no barbarian would want to do. Why would you do that? You no, you wouldn't bother. No. Mm. You wouldn't bother. 
So just to clarify for people who aren't aware of the Picts, they are effectively the peoples of modern-day Scotland. Yes, they too are settlers. And so they've potentially come down into the lands south of Hadrian's Wall and helped the Romans protect certain areas. Yes. Yes, Okay. Well, yes, they were (laughs) enemies of Rome. So the Picts are the indigenous peoples of Scotland. The Scottish, the Scotty, the tribe of the Scotty, are from Ireland and they come into Scotland and conquer Scotland and they fuse with the Picts to form this new kingdom called Scotland. So that's slightly later. So when we're looking at the departure of Roman influence from Britannia, who actually leaves? Well, probably very few people actually left Britain. Um, As we've been discussing, the Roman army had its business cut out for it on the continent and had been taken off there. And many of the um, high-level officials would probably have already gone by this point, and any who were left at the beginning of the 5th century got out of there quite quickly, I imagined, um, because they had only been there on a temporary basis. So one group of people in Britain who may have upped and left in addition were the super-rich, people who owned estates in multiple locations across the empire. And these people probably felt they would be safer elsewhere and may have relocated back to one of their other estates. So really, it's a very small amount of power that is spread via people who you're controlling in that land. So the real power is actually concentrated in in a small number of people. Yes, absolutely. It's always with the elite, isn't it? Yes. How and where did the native British people live afterwards? In previously Roman towns and cities? Or how did it work, Cameron? There was a definite contraction of urban places and their populations. And the defensibility of these urban places was the key issue. And so for a compact town with stone walls, the defences were often reinforced and people sort of hunkered down. And the evidence for this is often referred to as squatter occupation, where you see the the reuse of uh, any viable buildings or parts of buildings, but there's a a lot of new construction in timber to replace the deteriorating stone buildings of a few, few generations before. And activities formerly located outside the towns might move into them, vegetable gardens, livestock. So you get the phenomenon called dark earth in many of these post-Roman towns, where there is this huge depth of dark soil developing, which is formed of just rubbish, which, which formerly would have been disposed of outside the town boundaries, which was uh, enforced by municipal authorities. But that's all gone by the wayside. And um, so that's what's happening in the towns. But Roxeter, which is very much where Roger and I are both coming from, what we know very well, there, it was such a large area. The defences enclosed such a vast area, it was impossible to defend with a much reduced population. And uh, the last residents must have felt very vulnerable there. And uh, Roxeter did not go on being occupied, say, past the mid, maybe late 5th century? Mid 5th. Really. Mid, we're going to go with mid 5th. Yeah, okay, I'm happy go with that. Mid 5th. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so just to clarify the dates, exactly how many years would that have been after the decision to withdraw military support? 40 well, years. Sort of 40 years? 
40, 40 to 50 years, yeah. Effectively two generations. And Roxley Roman City is in Shropshire, of course, which is uh, in the West Midlands. How did people's lives change during this period where things are changing quite a lot, but very gradually? Uh, there is a lot of regional variation. And so people on the very far periphery in Cornwall and Scotland might wouldn't have experienced much in the way of real changes. But elsewhere, in a relatively short space of time, people went from being able to acquire the consumer goods they needed for everyday life to having to make do and mend on a huge scale. I mean, I'm not saying that they were bereft of, of all <laughs> objects and, and uh, paraphernalia because there are a lot of things that would formerly have been made in, in more durable materials, metals and ceramics. They were now being made in wood, which, of course, does not survive at all well archaeologically. So th there is a lot of material that is lost to us now. Do you think the people became less urbanised and more agrarian? I think, yeah, the troubles are talking about that there are more nuances to this. If you're in the urban context, one of the critical things that we haven't mentioned at all is the fact that you're almost certainly going to have a bishop there. In all of the major towns, there will be a bishop because by the late 4th century, Christianity is the official recognised uh, religion of the empire. And that means that all the towns have to have a bishop or at least some prelate who is going to look after the Christian people. So this is very much a, a, an urban religion, Christianity. At this stage, though, you don't really have parish churches. There's no such thing as a parish church. And there's no real attempt to embed Christianity in the rural areas in the same way they are embedded in towns. So, you know, you do have this dichotomy between these two. So in the towns, the bishop is very concerned to continue to have a flock to preach to. He wants to preserve urban life because it's really, really important that the church has this. This is the organisation of the church. Without cities, there is no church. It's quite simple. They want to keep it going. And anyone who's living in the east of England, as it becomes increasingly under the control of pagan Germans or Anglo-Saxons or whatever you want to call them, Christian people are going to go west because that's where the Christian faith is based. So there is this, in the rural areas, people are probably still worshipping the old gods. And this is where, you know, you get this term pagan from. Pagan means country dwellers. So, you know, the old religion is in the countryside and the new faith is in the towns. So it's quite nuanced. And do you think people were still fairly self-sufficient around growing their own crops and that sort of thing? I presume we didn't have a society like we have today where we rely so heavily on imports and markets. It, everything, everything became very, very small, very self-sufficient very insular. You could only access the things that were very local to you. It was a big change. But do you think uh, even with the Roman occupation, people would have still had those skills to grow their own crops and rear their own animals and all that sort of thing? Absolutely. They'd have oh, to, of course. otherwise they'd starve. We do see at Roxeter, analysis of the animal bone has shown very clearly 
that by the end they're relying much more on wild species than they are on domesticated. So although the domesticated animals don't disappear, you get many, many more, you get much more evidence of the use of deer and other you know, wild species than you would otherwise see. So almost revert to um, hunting previous generations of um, people who lived on these islands. It does feel like that, yes. So that's interesting. So they never really, you have to forgive me, because obviously I'm looking at this through a 21st century lens where everything's provided for me, really. So yes, people were given some benefits with Roman culture, but they never truly lost their hunter-gatherer past, shall we say. I think that stratum must always have been there, because if you're poor and you can't afford to buy things like fish sauce in the market or olive oil or whatever, you are always going to be reliant on what's available. Were a power vacuum and instability created by this gradual disappearance of Roman influence? I think I would turn it round. Basically what is happening here is that the people on the periphery of the empire have lost confidence in the ability of the centre to defend them. They no longer believe that the emperor in Rome can defend them and they're looking to protect themselves through local arrangements. That's what's happening. So it's not a formal disengagement. They're just saying, until you can sort yourselves out, we are going to look after ourselves. And the point is that this had happened in the third century. Bits of the empire had broken away. The empire had nearly fragmented completely in in the third century on the western half of the empire. But they had pulled themselves back together in the late third century and they'd managed to reunite the empire. And so people thought, well, this is happening all over again. We'll have local revolts, we'll have local government, and eventually the Rome will come back and restore control. But they just didn't. We've got a lot of um, nuance and it's all a bit sort of woolly and indistinct. <laughs> but um, was there, because I'm a former journalist, I'm, I always go for the newsy angles, but um, was there a kind of power vacuum and instability or was it just sort of really wishy-washy sort of lackadaisical semi-chaos sort of thing? I think initially it was relatively calm, but as things clearly fell apart, you begin to get much more conflict. You begin to get what you would expect, the fragmentation of these very large provinces into localised areas that then begin fighting amongst themselves and against their neighbours. So you basically get power grabs, local power grabs. It's a bit like saying, you know, the local government of Sirencester says, well, we're going to have our own little kingdom, our own little fiefdom, and you over there in Shropshire are going to have yours, and you down there in Carmarthen can have your bit. And that's what you get is a fragmentation of these bigger units. And once you get this fragmentation, then clearly they can be picked off one by one. So that sort of answers my next question about how people organised themselves as the power slipped away. Did the rich and powerful who were living nice and comfortably under the Roman occupation begin to take charge? Would the power have always gone back into the hands of the local elites? I think initially, yes, because people will always go with what what exists. But the guarantee of that was, could they defend? And as Cameron pointed out, places like Rockster, you can't defend. And although a bishop is on paper extremely powerful in the late Roman Empire, in practice, when it comes to dealing with barbarians, they are powerless. 
because they are men of peace. So we have a really good parallel with this, with a, a bishop called Sidonius Apollinaris. He's based in Clermont-Ferrand, in the centre of France. And he is being besieged by Burgundians in the mid-5th century. He wants to stay with the Roman Empire, he wants to stay with Rome. But eventually he has to sign a peace treaty with the Burgundians because he's fearful that if he doesn't, the city will be sacked and destroyed. And when it comes to it, he wants to preserve life rather than the political connections. So the elites do have power, but that power is is more based on the respect that people have for them. And if that respect is gone, and if it's clear that they don't have a lot of power, then others will step in. And the people who are stepping in are the people on the periphery, which we mentioned earlier, the people who live in places on the coast in these in, in these centres that Cameron was talking about in Cornwall, like Chun Castle or Chisorcer or Trithurgi and all of these other sites, where they, even in the Roman period, they're acting semi-independently. They know what to do. They know how to seize the reins of power. So the pagans take over, effectively? Effectively. Yes. And also, paradoxically, they are, because they're close to the coast, they are in exactly the right position for when later in the 5th century and into the 6th century, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, reaches out and spreads Christianity, monastic Christianity into the western part of the empire. And they are coming by the Atlantic sea routes. So they are going to hit, first of all, places like Tintagel on the Cornish Peninsula and all the points up the Irish Sea. So all of the Christian influence is reinforced by this connection in this late 5th century, early 6th century by the importation of monasticism and these connections with the Byzantine Empire and the, the resurgence under Justinian. Hmm. It is amazing how different everything was in the Far West. Yes, because the Far West is where Roman influence, as you've described, appears weakest, and that is where new senses of identities can come out of. Yes, but there's an overlay of Rome, and the overlay of Rome comes because of Christianity. Because when these pagans become Christian, as they do in this late 4th, late 5th, early 6th century period, they convert to Christianity, and they become Christian kings. And this is why Gildas attacks them. Gildas is a British monk writing in probably Chester or in that sort of region, and he castigates all of these kings, so-called kings he calls them, of Wales and Cornwall. And he says, you say you're Christian, but you're behaving like tyrants, you're behaving like pagans. You, you know, you're bloodthirsty or you're doing all sorts of wicked things, even though you're, you're saying you're Christian. And the point, about, the point about this trade route coming into the western coast is that it's importing the very things that the church absolutely needs, but can't obtain locally which is wine and olive oil and, more invisibly, books. So, that, you know, those three things are coming, books and ideas are coming in with the wine and the olive oil that they're using in their services. So it's almost as if where Roman influence and the military might of Rome has completely lost its grip, religion 
becomes the new influence. And the Romans yes. kind of co-opt that religion, don't they? In a sense, through Christianity, Roman influence continues to live, live on in the British Isles for many centuries. Yes, there's a very interesting Anglo-Saxon poem called the Vidsif, which means the traveller. And he just lists pairs of peoples. But his name for the Welsh is very interesting. He says, the Rum Wallow, which is the Rome Wales. He refers to the peoples of Wales as Romans. And that's how they saw themselves. Because they're Christian by then, they are also Romans. Fascinating. Well, I think we've managed to tie up quite a few loose ends there. So I think we've done quite well. Let's talk about um, some more solid facts of uh, Roman occupation. So they left behind, of course, a lot of physical assets, big settlements, arches and all, all kinds of infrastructure. Were the big settlements plundered for building materials, Roger? Not initially, because as Cameron pointed out, they're building in timber and you need to know how to mix mortar. You need to know. So they don't really plunder the sites in that sense for stonework until much later really not until the 10th or 11th century. We have, for example, Giraldus Cambrensis, Gerald of Wales, who writes about walking round the ruins of the baths at Caerleon. If you look at the street plan of Chester, the street plan actually mirrors the barrack buildings, which were still standing in the Norman period. So we have lots and lots of buildings. They're swept away relatively late in, in some places. So there are fragments of buildings everywhere. And the material that they're really looking for to reuse is metal. If they are plundering sites, it's not for the building materials, it's for the metals. Iron and copper and silver, and if they could find it, these are all recycled into their economies. It's much easier to raid a Roman site than it is to make your own copper or copper alloy or iron rather than going to a mine and having to work extract all. Lead is another one. So bars are a principal target because they're absolutely full of lead. So early recycling taking place, basically. Yeah. Are there any surviving written accounts about Roman infrastructure by the sort of new occupiers of the British Isles? The famous one is a poem called The Ruin, which is an Anglo-Saxon poem. We don't know its date, but probably 8th or 9th, something like that. But it talks about, from its description, it could easily be talking about someone standing in the ruins of Bath and talking about the Roman, the ruins of the Roman baths in Bath. And that's obviously several, a few centuries after the uh, quote-unquote official departure. Yeah. It's almost like a picturesque movement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So as we sort of begin to round out our discussion, broadly speaking, was the British population better or worse off following the end of Roman rule? Cameron, do you want to... Give us an answer first. Yes. I, I, I mean, everything we've said up to this point will, will indicate that they were definitely much worse off than they had been during the previous centuries. And for a few generations, it, it must have been really rough. Something I've been looking at recently from old excavations at Roxeter is an example of what seems clear to me to be a kind of a ceremony of closure as people prepared to leave one of the one of the large townhouses in the center of Roxeter. And they went around to the wells that were part of this extensive complex 
And one of them they filled with a very large number of complete deer antlers and leg bones. And another was filled up with many complete ceramic vessels. And these ceremonies conjure up, for me at least, a, a really kind of poignant picture of a sort of thanksgiving for everything that that place had brought them, but a necessary farewell. I like your interpretation. How do we know that that's a, a, an accurate interpretation, that they weren't just tidying up and chucking things into the nearest, you know, sort of rubbish dump? Well, you know, if you were going to need those wells, if you were going to need that drinking water, you wouldn't be filling up the wells. And they are unusual things to use, to be specific about using complete red deer antlers and these complete ceramic vessels. They're not simply throwing them down the wells. They're placing them there carefully. Mm. This is my reading of, of, that, of those excavations. What about you, um, Roger? Was the British population better or worse off after the Romans left? For the ordinary peasant, I don't think there's any change at all, to be honest. You know, they, they'd always had a hard life. The one thing I would say, in the Roman Empire, they are taxed within an inch of their lives. The problem with tax in the, in the late Roman world is that it falls on those who, who can't avoid it. If you're rich, you can avoid tax. If you're not, then you get absolutely hammered. Uh, particularly by the poll tax, the, the, what they call a capita. And not only are they taxing you in money, but when money loses its value, they say, oh, we'll take your goods instead then. And they'll take your food and they'll take your seed corn for the next year. And they don't care if you're going to starve. So in that sense, they probably were better off without Rome. Um, yes. But you know, emotionally, and certainly as Cameron points out, they're much more vulnerable. They're vulnerable to warring parties. Anyone can just come along and say, well, we want your food. We want whatever you've got. And they'll just take it. Mm. Um, so, yes, the poor peasant, I'm afraid, will always suffer. The, the elites had a choice. And some of them do flee. One of the reasons there are so many British refugees that flee across the channel, ironically, presumably in boats, um, they flee across the channel and they settle in Brittany in such large numbers that they actually change the name of the place. Because before it was Brittany, it was Armorica. And Brittany means Little Britain, because there are so many British people living there that it actually changes the name of the place. I've always wondered about that. So now I've got my answer. Because, <laughs> um, of course, the French call um, Britain Grande Bretagne, don't they? And yeah. Brittany is Bretagne. Yeah, how much is there left to learn about life in Britain immediately after the Roman withdrawal and even in the centuries following that? Well, I, I was going to say, I think that's one for Roger because Roger has been doing some recent research on the very final episode of uh, urban life at, at Roxeter Roman City. Yeah, this, this brings us back full circle because the problem we've always had at Roxeter is how you date its end. And 30 years ago, when we dug the sequences that we study today, we couldn't date levels because you had to have enormous amounts of carbon to get a sample, to get a date. Now, radiocarbon technology has developed in such, to such a level that we can date individual grains of cereals. You can take an individual wheat grain and date it. And that means that we can revisit, or have revisited, 
all of the stratified material, all of the stuff we've recovered from the excavations in the 1960s to 1980s, and we can look at it again and date many, many more contexts and many, many more. We can date bones, we can date seeds. We've got a much more nuanced picture. And from that, we have been able to redate the sequences that we found 30 years ago and published 30 years ago. We've been able to say now they're basically coming to an end, not in the... We, we guessed... Well, we've had a scientific date which has been discredited, which meant that we were dating things much too late. We've had to pull everything back. But the basis on which we are now dating things is incredibly secure. It's based on radiocarbon-dated tree ring chronologies. So these are linked to precise years, and we can have a much greater confidence in the dating that we are arriving at. And that's basically saying that the site was abandoned sometime around about 4.30 to 4.50. And what was interesting is I've just been working on a, a late Roman hack silver hoard from when? It's even later than, than that date. It's probably in the, at the very end of the 5th century. This is a bag of silver coins and scrap which someone has been carrying around. It's, a, it's about half a kilo. It's like carrying a small bag of sugar around with you. And it's just full of silver. And this is uh, someone's personal store of wealth, but it dates to probably at this very end of the 5th century. I wonder what happened to that person. Perhaps they died or... Well, quite. Yes. <laughs> they didn't recover their hoard. No, really. they left it behind. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the last thing that we can say? What is the legacy of the Roman occupation of Britain? Cameron, what's your first thought? I mean, it's a cliche, but I think most people will know that we are still travelling on, on many of the roads the Romans made in the in Britain, like Watling Street that runs right through the middle of Roxeter and which runs up from Richborough on the southeast coast up to Roxeter and beyond in the northwest. But I really think what comes out of what we've been talking today is that the most significant legacy was this kind of Romanized Christianity. And that really was the vehicle for ensuring the survival of of many aspects of Roman organization and classical culture and literacy. I would add one thing to that. Christianity is probably the most important legacy. But for people in Western Britain, the most important legacy they have is that they keep their British identity. They stay Cornish or they stay Welsh. And that only happened because there was resistance to the incoming Germanic populations. And that resistance continued until it was finally broken by Edward I when he took Carnarvon. A final thought. What have the Romans done for us? It's one of those questions that... I don't know who invented that question, but um, they've done quite a lot, haven't they? Yes. They have. They've uh, they certainly left English heritage with quite a few exciting and wonderful sites to manage and promote. And for you, Roger? For me, they've employed me my, my entire life, the Romans. <laughs> so working, working on them and, and studying them and trying to understand what happened in this incredibly difficult period. Yes. Um, and, and to have lived long enough to have seen this complete revolution in dating has, has been a real honour in a way because everything was so unresolved and now we can sort of say, OK, this is when it happened. So the jigsaw puzzle is 
starting to get a bit clearer. Yes. And um, for people who want to get a fix of um, Roman influence in Britain in person, if you had to pick one English heritage site each for someone to visit, what would you choose? I think we're we're both going to pick Roxeter. We're both going to pick Roxeter, but have a go. We're both going to pick Roxeter. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, you could go to Tintagel and see a very different side of life in Britain at the end of the 5th century. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week in the run-up to Mother's Day here in the UK, we'll hear about England's memorable mothers from history. They weren't just disinterested incubators of future aristocrats. These women were also empowered by their roles as educators of the children, and many mothers gained considerable authority over both their female and their male offspring. Thanks for listening. See you next time.